It flies. It spies. It's very strange. Yes, this week on Download This Show, without a doubt, the oddest security camera I've ever seen. And what does it say about the future of surveillance and fear? Plus, Netflix's documentary The Social Dilemma has gotten much of the world talking about tech giants and what they're doing to our brains. But does the documentary give the full picture? And if you happen to be working from home these days, should your boss be allowed to spy on you to see if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? Because that software exists and it is definitely being used. All that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download the Show. Mark Fennell. I, look, I've already told you my name. I don't know why I insist on doing it twice, but here goes anyway. I'm Mark Fennell. What up? Uh, and we are joined by Natasha Gillizzo, tech, uh, media and marketing writer with the Financial Review. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm very excited to be back for round two, Mark. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, editor with Information Security Media Group, Jeremy Kirk. Welcome back. Thank you for having me again. The social dilemma. It's like a, a Voltron-like collection of all the things that social media are doing to our brains that's bad. Yeah, pretty much. It kind of sums up all the issues about social media and kind of wraps them up into a 90-minute documentary, ranging from like misinformation and disinformation to surveillance capitalism. And, uh, you know, it features a lot of interviews with former executives of like Twitter and Google and Facebook who've kind of come around the bend and said, are we really designing systems? Have we designed systems that are actually kind of uh, destructive and too addictive? Um, So a lot of these issues have been playing out for many years. And if you follow the tech industry, you are definitely aware of some of these issues. Um, But it does it does wrap things up in a nice, tidy package. And I think perhaps the general public maybe isn't quite aware of some of these things of just how addictive some of this technology is and some of the software design and human interaction decisions that went into them. So I think it's it's, it's it's for some people it'll be very informative um but it also doesn't get into a lot of the solutions to some of the problems as well so mm. is it wrong natasha that i'm somewhat cynical about a whole bunch of uh tech executives who got their gazillion dollar payouts and then discovered their consciences to come on this documentary is it is, it, is that cynical of me i think it's totally fair to be cynical um i think also like with some of the tech executives who have actually been featured, like Tristan Harris and Jaron Lanier, these guys have been writing for years, like the polemics against social media. Jaron Lanier literally wrote 10 reasons to delete your social media accounts now. So not only are these the guys who've kind of been on the inside, made their gazillions and then gotten out, but they're on the most extreme end of the spectrum in terms of arguing against what Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., have become. So they're quite, they've got a certain position in Silicon Valley. Um, they've already got like, you know, they're now making, I guess, a different kind of money and value from arguing against it. Um, but yeah, a little bit of cynicism. Why not? <laughs> Come on. I think his name is Tristan from memory. Oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. I would not want to mispronounce Tristan. Tristan. <laughs> All right. So, Jeremy, uh, one of the things that's happened since um, the documentary's come out is that Facebook have issued a, a multi-part 
uh, takedown of the film and all the different things it gets wrong. In fact, they're quite specific with what, with what they call it. They literally say what the social dilemma gets wrong. Of the various t- different things they point out, they talk about addiction, they uh, dispute the idea that if you're not paying for something, you are the product. They talk about algorithms and how much data and the work they've done with polarisation and elections and misinformation. Do you think Facebook were unfairly, just as to pick one uh, social media company, do you think they were unfairly maligned in the film? I don't think they're unfairly maligned. I mean, I think some of some parts of the film do go to a bit of extreme lengths. Like, for instance, I think they talked to the uh, the former Pinterest executive who said, they asked him, where do you think all this is headed with misinformation and everything else? And he says, I think we're headed towards civil war, um, which is a pretty sharp point to put on it. Um, I don't expect Facebook to agree with anything that's in the film because consistently over the years they've batted away any concerns about its service whatsoever and there are legitimate concerns around misinformation there are legitimate concerns around how much time spend someone spends on the platform. There are concerns about, you know, uh, mine, its effect on minors and their own sort of self-worth and self-esteem. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily unfair. But I, I mean, I, I do think that the film does focus a lot on the negatives of social media. And there are positives. And look, I'm, I'm definitely no fan of, of social media and watching this industry very closely. I mean, there's a lot of things to be very cynical about. But there are positive things about it as well. So when you look at a film that on the whole is extremely sort of negative, I mean, I think that um, it's not quite balanced per se. Like you can have positive aspects from social media and those stories might be few and far between. And it's easy. It's it's always very easy to define a problem rather than to propose a solution to it. So I think the film does a very good job of explaining the problems of it. But I also don't think it gets into, well, what do we do about it? How do we fix it? And that, of course, in 90 minutes, it's very difficult to encapsulate, you know, the solutions, but it is kind of like tacked on at the end of the film of like, well, we could ban the platforms or we could have regulation or yeah, we just need to do things differently. Now, I'm sure uh, Tristan Harris, um, who's with an organization that advocates, uh, you know, better design of technology uh, that also respects like, you know, sort of moral and ethical boundaries um, probably has more detail, you know, uh, his group has more detail about how to reform it, but it's certainly not in the, in the film makes it very clear what we should do about it. Absolutely. So I think the main point um, that Facebook in its response to what social, the social dilemma gets wrong that I find really valid is Facebook are basically saying, look, um, yep, you're right. There are issues with the attention economy. There are issues with the fact that social media is a poor emotional substitute um, for real intimacy. There are potential issues with um, targeted advertising or political echo chambers. All that stuff, you know, is true. Facebook don't fully concede that. They don't fully concede the seriousness, but they acknowledge some of it. But what Facebook then say to the makers of The Social Dilemma is that in the making of this film, you haven't acknowledged what we have done or what has changed um, from, say, 2016 to now, 2020. And that's a long time in social media world. That's a long time in the tech world. Um, and there are new, you know, they've got, you know, global heads of policy. They've got new different people in place who are trying to directly address some of those concerns. And I think Facebook is fair in pointing out that maybe the hey, okay, what has changed from identifying these issues to now isn't something that's fully captured in The Social Dilemma. 
I think that's absolutely right. I, mean, I think anytime if you make a documentary, you have to talk to the other side. And when you talk to a handful of executives who've left and are also getting a lot of uh, attention because their stance is contrary to you know the, sort of the conventional wisdom, um, you, you have to have balance. And so it probably would have been good to at least have Facebook's public policy director or you know talk about things like you know screen time limits and things like that. And they, they have really tried to make an effort to address some of these issues now, whether they fully resolve the problems? No. But in the interest of fairness, you do need to speak to all parties. I mean, I guess it's worth pointing out it wouldn't be the first time that a, a documentary has been polemic in nature. I think one of the things that I, I find difficult is that there are some aspects of certain social media services where the damage that they do is inbuilt to their core business. And so to take an example, you know, Twitter by its very nature rewards our worst impulses largely. It's like whoever can respond the, the fastest and the snarkiest is the one that gets the most amount of retweets and, and, and attention. It's like there are things that you can do around the edges of some of these services that you can say are making changes, but at the end of the day, like some of them to some degree, and, you know, I'm speaking in broad strokes here, the, the negative aspects are, are built into the, the core of them. And I think at some point maybe you've got to kind of shift the conversation to being about, well, how do we navigate it being part of our existence rather than talking about things like regulation? Is that, I mean, tell me if I'm oversimplifying it, Natasha. No, I think I think that's sort of a really great point, Mark, because it's like I think, and this is where I would love the conversation for society to kind of go when it comes to social media, is like we have to understand that when you build certain structures in certain ways, you get certain outcomes. Um, and I think what is most illuminating, and I, The Social Dilemma did this in a kind of hyperbolic way with its the three guys on the other end of the screen, like trying to kind of game and manipulate the, the young teenage user. Um, but I think what it's trying to say is like, look, all human beings need a better understanding of what software engineers are doing. Given that we're using this tech every day, let's try and become more literate in how and why it has been built. And I, um, I, I'd be a huge advocate for that because I do think it is a bit of a knowledge is power thing here. Like when you realize that Instagram is essentially a virtual shopping mall, um, you can be like, okay, that's what it is. That's how. That's why the explore feed displays items of clothing or, or, or places I'd like to go to based on all my past interactions with this platform because it's trying. It, it's treating me. The software engineers are treating me as a potential consumer, like a would-be consumer, and that can kind of you know, to an extent empower you to know what to do from there. And it can empower, you know, regulators from the Therapeutic Goods Association to the ACCC to also, you know, step in as regulators where they need to, um, if that, you know, that the way those platforms has been engineered is getting out of hand or causing harms that as a society we're like, no, that's not an acceptable use of, you know, your platform. But um, so I'm a big advocate for kind of, I guess, uh, pulling back the curtain on what the engineers are doing, but maybe not in this sort of like, they're all evil scientists out to manipulate us because I just don't know if that's a very convincing characterization of the relationship, even if there is some truth to that. Also, like most people that work at large tech companies are not evil scientists. Most people do so with like everybody that I've ever met and, and dealt with at any of the major social media companies basically has <laughs> very good intentions, but it's like there's intentions and then and, and real like serious consideration of what happens to their users. But again, intention and effect sometimes, Jeremy, can be two quite different things. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the documentary points out, you know, the whole point of a lot of these engineering efforts were to get people engaged with the platform and grow user bases. And they did that really well. In fact, the uh, gentleman who designed the Facebook like button, they, they actually just designed it to make people feel good. So there wasn't any sort of underhanded intention there. Um, but at the same time, you know, these definitely are very addictive platforms. And it kind of begs the question of like, well, what do you do about it? Can you tell all these billion dollar companies to build less attractive products that people <laughs> won't use as much. That doesn't make sense. And, you know, another compelling argument, too, made by someone else, one of the other interviewees, was that there is just so much money underpinning these companies that to take away, you know, to make to have these companies try to engineer themselves to be less attractive also poses a threat to these this enormous financial threat to people who have shares in these companies, which is makes it also very unlikely that there is going to be any sort of change. Well, you can see the uh, the film The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which of course uh, does not at all make use of algorithms to change your behavior at all. <laughs> uh, download this show is what you're listening to it is your guide to the week in media technology and culture and it is a bird it's a plane no it's a weird drone in your house it's also a security camera i don't know it's 2020 things are weird um natasha what exactly are we talking about amazon have released uh, a new product called the ring always home a internal private home security camera except it's actually a drone. So it can fly around through your house on a path that you train it. Um, and the way you train the path is you like carry the drone through your home on this little path, it learns the path. Um, and it can take this five minute flight path and film video. And yeah, it's um, that, and that's US $250 if, if, if you want that in your life and okay. in your home. So just like, I think because this is a non-visual medium, just describe for me visually what I'm looking at, Jeremy. Uh, it's kind of got a stick, I guess, or like a handle, and then on top of it, there's sort of a box, and that's where the drone, uh, the drone function is, uh, the whirling fans. And so when it sits in its cradle, it doesn't. Its camera is obscured, and so I watched the uh, the demo advert for it, and it's it's someone who's away from their home, and they get an alert on their phone, and it switches to the home, and the drone like comes up and takes off because somebody has come in the come in the back door and tripped the ring alarm, which then communicates with the drone to uh, rise from its cradle <laughs> and begin buzzing around the house. And so what happens in the demo is that the, the intruder comes in, he sees the drone, he's so freaked out by what is this thing flying in the, in the living room that he just runs out. And then the, the homeowner is then uh, uh, happy that this person has run away. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit perplexed on like who would buy this and why versus I guess it's perhaps cheaper than buying like a full sort of security system for your house video security system. But I mean, I guess it also depends on uh, if this thing works properly. And if you were an intruder, couldn't you just come in and just swat the thing down? Um, there's but just I guess by that like point, it's already got a picture of you and it's kind of done. Because I think half the thing with security yeah. camera footage is it, like, I guess it, it comes down to, do you want security camera footage to be surreptitious? Do you want to be able to, to capture somebody without them seeing? Or do you want it to be a deterrent? And I guess this would... This only really works as a deterrent because you can't really ignore this thing when it's flying in your face, can you, Jeremy? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but at the same time, if they've already been captured, I mean, what's what's by video, what's going to stop them from taking a few things before they run out two minutes later? So I just kind of, it's, it's just kind of very sort of questionable, I think, the utility of it. 
I think what they're aiming to be or aiming to do is just to expand into this field of private security. So security for citizens traditionally has been done by the state. You know, think about your police forces or or what have you. But I guess also there's an American cultural context here. For example, the Amazon Ring doorbell Um, which basically allows if you're at work and you get a package delivered um, that you can have it signed off, you can see who delivered the package and you can watch them until the the package deliverer has actually left. That's a hugely profitable product for Amazon. So it's obviously doing really well and people um, are buying it, at least in America, where there's kind of some different attitudes towards these kind of products. And I guess it also feeds into Amazon's bigger business as well. If if people can have deliveries delivered to their house and they can, you know, automatically unlock a door and let people in, like you could see how that would feed into um, Amazon's broader mission, Jeremy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it would be very convenient. I mean, the other question is, can somebody else unlock your door too? Um, you know, there's been a lot of security questions raised around Ring as well, um, because they were only using login and password for a while. I think they're now using two-factor authentication, which means that people, it would be more difficult to compromise those accounts. Um, but, you know, the question with any of these things is is how, you know, the, the, sto- the footage is stored on Amazon. I mean, with the Ring doorbell in particular, they were sharing footage with local police departments. And I think a lot of that sharing wasn't really widely known until it was, it was exposed in some media reports. So there are some questions about, I mean, once you turn this, once you have this footage, a third party, you know, holding this footage, it's like, is Amazon going to try to monetize that? Who is it going to share it with? Um, are you, do you feel comfortable with having, you know, photographs or video from inside your house on, on, a, on a third party's uh, server? They're all questions that should be asked. Given the uh, the inference that the United States is headed towards a, a civil war, according to that that one guy from Pinterest in the social dilemma, do you think the level of fear? And I look, we're talking about a country of you know two hundred and something million people. Do you think the level of fear is of a level where something like this would find a market, Jeremy? I think it would. I mean, I think a lot of people are. Uh, uh, things are really on edge uh, in the U.S. in a way that I don't think that they've been for a long time or perhaps even never. So I think people are worried about their personal security. And if you combine that with the whole gun equation in the U.S., uh, where guns are freely available, and it's kind of almost like the more guns that are out there, the more people want them because they perceive the threat. So these things kind of snowball into, uh, I guess, kind of a a greater worry about personal safety while paradoxically making everything more dangerous. So I think uh, security cameras would probably have an enormously wide market, if not for just to get be able to let in the Amazon delivery uh, person, uh, you know, through the front door. I think there's also, you know, maybe I'm obviously not in the US, so I don't necessarily have the visibility on the ground, but at least watching from Australia, the debates around police brutality and Black Lives Matter, there's also probably a market of people where trust in the police force has broken down to an extent where there probably just is a higher level of comfort in taking those matters into your own hands and, you know, installing your own cameras and having your own kind of um, system rather than rely on uh, what the state provides in this regard. Natasha makes a really, really good point because a lot of the issues, especially around police brutality, would have never been highlighted without video. And so in, a, in another way, it does highlight a lot of societal wrongs and it's incontrovertible proof. You can see the video and it's even and even with the video, uh, there's still trouble making progress with some of these issues. 
Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. In studio, well, not really in studio, uh, connected very socially distant via the internet, we have Natasha Dilzo, uh, tech media and marketing reporter with the Australian Financial Review, and Jeremy Kirk, editor with Information Security Media Group. And if you're one of those people that spent last few months working from home, what if your boss was spying on you? What if they could see when you took a little bit longer to have lunch? What if they could see if you were just ignoring those emails? There is a new range of technology that will allow bosses to see whether or not you are shirking from home, Jeremy. Explain it to me, please. (laughs) And is my boss using it right now? (laughs) Well, they should be telling you about it. So, I mean, this type of software is legal uh, for employers to use. I mean, especially if they're providing you with uh, equipment. It's also required of them to inform you that they're using workplace monitoring software. So this software is on a computer and it can literally monitor anything that you do. So it's looking at the applications you access. It can look at the files that you've accessed. It can look at your uh, instant messaging conversations with your colleagues. And it's designed to, you know, some of these applications will give employers uh, like a spreadsheet breakdown of how you spent your day, including a productivity score, which uh, at least according to one vendor is based on how much you've been typing or how much you've moved your mouse. Um, So, I mean, it can be very granular detailed. I mean, there's also companion applications for mobile phones. So this is kind of like for companies that have sales forces so they can track exactly where you are and they can go out and make sure that you're visiting clients rather than, you know, drinking at the Hub. Um, so it's 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 very invasive kind of software, um, and you know they market this as a way to ensure that your employees aren't you know malingering, um, but probably some trust issues as well. <laughs> so there's at least one company by the name of uh, Hubstaff that have done this. And according to the BBC, um, the number of UK customers is up four times year on year since February. Gee, I wonder why. How many of these different services, like, you know, roughly are there, uh, Natasha, that, that you're aware of? Work Examiner, Very Clock, Terramind, there's a lot of different software types and they're really running the gamut of um, different things from exactly as Jeremy said, like the keystroke logging all the way to taking screenshots, all the way to location tracking. Um, so it kind of depends um, what you want and the extent of that. And it's all within this software as a service realm. And yeah, but there's, there's, a, there's a lot in this market for sure. What's the ethics of it? Like what, what should, in your view, as, a, as, a, as an employee, um, what's, a, like, what's a level of, of like workplace surveillance that you would be comfortable with, Natasha? Well, I'm definitely comfortable, you know, with a level because that is part of, I guess, the, the the contract that has been formed between employer and employee. The ethics piece, I think, you know, from a legal or ethics point of view is just is that informed consent, which is always going to be a bit tricky in a relationship where there's a difference in power as there is with an employer and employee. You can't really negotiate that consent in the same way as if it's two friends deciding to um, track each other's location. I guess the ethics piece I'm interested in, but I'm actually more interested in the does this actually promise to do what it does like does Mm. tracking someone's keyboard strokes actually tell tell you how productive they are because I think 
I worry that these products um, will accelerate the rise of fake work and fake productivity and performative work. Whereas wouldn't, aren't you more concerned about whether your employee is actually bringing value to your company? And that's going to depend on a sector by sector analysis. Whether you're working in sales, actually going to the pub and chatting to people could be a really valuable use of your time. If you're working in the media yeah. like me and your output is, is content, um, there's a lot of, there's a creative process that goes into that. Not every step of the way looks like keystrokes. In fact, that could be a really misleading um, um, measure. So I'm also interested in a, like, does this software promise to do um, what, what it says it's going to do? And I think employers should ask really hard questions um, about that. It's also kind of about trust. I mean, and it, dep- it depends on the job, too. So this software, it's not only just kind of like workplace monitoring, but there's also like more advanced versions that are more sort of for compliance and regulation. So people like in the financial services industry have been used to this for years. Like literally everything is watched. Like the companies want to make sure that they're not stealing files or copying files. They want to be sure to capture all instant messaging conversations in case those get brought up in a lawsuit for insider trading or something like that. So there are very legitimate reasons for companies to use these sorts of things for regulatory and compliance. From a level of trust, too, it's like if an employer, you know, if you're kind of on the rocks with your boss or your employer and they want to get rid of you and they go, well, Mark, you know, you went out for a 27 minute walk and we only allowed 20 minutes and you've done that three times in the last month and they know down and you also logged off at 528 p.m. and we require you to work to 530. (laughs) So if they're building a case against you, right, to get rid of you, this could be really compelling sort of evidence to put in, in, you know, your firing letter. So, I mean, I I think uh, and I think most employees don't because there's such a fusion and distraction these days between the home and work because we're working at home. um, I think employers could potentially abuse this by just calling out very small things and, and building a case when maybe in the greater picture it's not really justified. There's also an interesting component here where because people are working from home, the lines between a workplace and a home place are being really interestingly blurred, right? So, for example, like I I understand why workplaces have things like security cameras, partially for safety, partially for security, and I get that as an accepted thing. But then there are companies like Sneak, which will literally take photos of workers through their laptop and upload them for, you know, colleagues and employers to see. There's a interesting thing that's happening there in terms of the, I guess, the blurring between a work environment and a, and the privacy of a home environment, Natasha. And I don't quite know, and I guess it comes down to a case-by-case scenario, but I can't, I must say, like, conceptually, I'm somewhat uncomfortable with it. Am I alone in that? No, not at all. I fully agree that that is so crossing the line. I mean, already employers have essentially, you could argue, sort of um, invaded our homes in some way, like invaded these private spaces. And there's some upsides to that for employees or some employees are sort of happy with that. But to kind of really keep on taking it to that next level and incrementalizing it to that, that point, I mean, there then becomes a line between are you an employee or are you a prisoner? And at that point, um, I mean, conceptually, obviously not literally, but we still need to have a think about that. Um, Because yeah, if you feel that level of kind of discomfort in your own home, in your own home office, in your own bedroom, in your own kitchen table, um, I I, I think that's a bad thing for, for that relationship and for society more broadly. Is there a point at which this technology actually starts to diminish the trust that employees can have for their employers? 
Absolutely. I would think so. I mean, if you know you're being watched, you're either going to try to do more work or you're going to do more performative work and learn how to game the system. And I think I read a story about, I think it was the the Hub uh, Hubstaff um, software too, of where the New York Times employee kind of like started to do things that he knew would register as making him look more productive. And so you, you have to question over that, is that actually productive or are you just trying to look productive? And so employees are also going to figure out how to game this sort of system. But yeah, the trust is kind of like if your employer, you know, doesn't clearly doesn't trust you by using this sort of software, you're probably it's probably going to create resentment and other things too. And that's not a good thing. What sort of questions would you be asking as an employee if your employer wanted to roll this out? What sort of things would you be wanting to, to get clear from the outset, do you think, Jeremy? how does this feed into my performance reports? Like how much does this sort of like weigh in? And when you apply these like really strict metrics that this software is kind of capable of, um, you have to kind of wonder if like, well, how much are you going to rely on that? How much are you going to rely on the output? I think I'd just ask why. And then I think I'd ask them to read Alex Sojourn Kim Pang's book, Rest, Why We Get More Done When We Like Rest Adequately, um, which actually really goes into the science of productivity in, I find a really compelling way um, that shows that when you do treat people like machines, um, you don't get the outcomes that you want, basically. So th- that would be the conversation that I, I would have. <laughs> Why? And here's a book that I read that I think will really blow your mind. <laughs> That's great. Uh, that is all we have time for on the show today. Natasha Gillizzo, tech, media and marketing writer with the Australian Financial Review. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. And Jeremy Kirk, editor with Information Security and Media Group. Thank you so much for being back. Always a pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you can find us on. And with that, I shall leave you. My name's Vimnark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Bye. Bye.